even if you still lack that confidence, and even if you don't believe me that anyone who's not good with numbers could still do this, one of the things I recommend throughout the guide is if you need some support, please, do you have a friend who's good with numbers, a friend you trust? Do you have a family member you trust who might be able to just sit with you and go through this stuff and provide you just a little bit of help? Because I think that we all know somebody who's good with numbers who would probably be willing to help us. Will you outlast your money? Do you stay awake at night worrying about providing for your family? Are you making the right decisions about your investments? There are many life-changing decisions that arise and questions you want answered when going through divorce or after you've received your settlement. This is the Financially Ever After podcast, where you'll hear stories of women like you and get advice from the industry's top professionals. Here's your award-winning and nationally recognized host, Stacey Francis. Have you ever worried that your spouse is not being 100% upfront with the value of assets, disclosing all the assets, their expenses and income? If any of these areas caused you pause of just kind of wondering, do you have all the information that's out there? Today's podcast is for you. We have Tracy Conan, who is here as our guest. She is a no-nonsense forensic accountant who really delivers the real deal to her clients. And today, we are getting real about fraud. And let's face it, with your money on the line, there's zero time to dance around issues. And you deserve to know where the money went. Tracy works as a forensic accountant through her firm, Sequence Inc. Forensic Accounting. And she's been doing fraud investigations for more than 25 years. And Tracy knows her stuff. She has a CPA, she's a certified public accountant, a CFF, certified in financial forensics, and an MAFF, which is a master analyst in financial forensics. She testifies. She's an expert around the country. And today we're going to be talking about everything you need to know. We talk about how to find hidden investments, income that's not being disclosed, expenses, concealing dissipated assets, such as maybe going towards a girlfriend or something that you should not be paying the bill for. And make sure you stay to the end because she gives you a fantastic tool to see how likely fraud is in your marriage, and most importantly, what to do about it. Not only that, we talk about what to do if there is a small business involved and the important areas that you need to consider to protect yourself and make sure that you have all the information you need. Because ultimately, these are decisions that are going to impact you for the rest of your life. And you deserve financial security. And I will tell you that Tracy and I are hellbent on doing just that. Please help me welcome our special guest today, Tracy Conan. Tracy, I'm so happy to have you here. It's typical that most little girls do not dream about becoming a forensic accountant or a fraud coach. Tell me about how you came to this field, because I can only imagine you have a story. I have a story like you've never heard before, but it's not really that exciting. So I went to college to get a criminology degree because 
I was fascinated with the criminal justice system. And my career goal was to become a prison warden. And I was in my sophomore year of that program. And there was an elective that was offered called financial crime investigation. And it was one of those classes that was only offered once every few years. And I thought, that sounds kind of interesting. If I ever want to take it, now's my chance because the next time it comes around, I'll probably be out of school already. So mm-hmm, I'm just mm-hmm. going to take one of my electives. Took financial crime investigation, thought it was the coolest thing ever and said, I think this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I took an accounting course to see how I did in it. Of course, I did great. And I was like, yep, here's where we're at. And from there on out, it was singular focus to do forensic accounting, even though back then in the early 90s, we didn't refer to forensic accounting really. The term had been coined at that time, and people were referring to themselves here and there as forensic accountants, but it was a phrase I never heard until, gosh, probably about the year 2000 when I started my own practice. That is really interesting. And I have to say that sometimes just trying something that you're curious about, and then all of a sudden you find your absolute passion. I love what you do too, because I have a real sense of what's right in the world and what's wrong. And taking advantage of someone, particularly for all of you listening, women who may or may not have their thumb on the pulse of their finances. But what I tend to find is that in divorces where one spouse is trying to pull the wool over the other's eye, it's usually they're the ones who know the ins and out of every dollar and she may not she may not have that same. And so it's essentially taking advantage. And I love to bust people for doing bad things. And you can only imagine I was like the worst little sister. Thank God my brother talks to me. We were just talking this weekend and like what I put him through. I was such a tattletale, really awful. But part of it is, is just making sure that people are not taken advantage of. And the challenge is that I feel like There's more fraud in divorce than we really want to recognize. I would love for there to be statistics on the instance of fraud and divorce because it would really help my case when I'm talking to people and telling them why it's so important to look very carefully at their finances. But there aren't statistics out there. Why? Because so much of the fraud goes undetected. We would be guessing at how much fraud there is. But you touched on something. The work that I do is really gratifying Finding fraud and helping people recover what is rightfully theirs is very satisfying to me. And many times they don't recover the money, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. knowing is helpful to them, knowing exactly what happened and where that money went. And so I've been doing this for 25 years. And earlier in my career, I did not do any divorce work. I focus really on corporate fraud, on companies that had business contracts gone bad and somebody lost money and I was figuring out what were the damages, how much money was lost and testifying in court and those kinds of things. I still do those things as well, but I added divorce work to what I did probably about 15 or 16 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I had avoided divorce work because of the emotional component to it. I didn't feel equipped to deal with that part of it. I got asked to work on a pretty big, pretty important divorce and found that I was actually very good at dealing with the emotional component because Mm. I could be empathetic and I could listen to what the issue was. And then I could offer action steps. And typically the action step is this. I know that divorce is really, really hard and there's a lot of emotions tied up in it. The way that I can best help you is by focusing on the numbers and the facts about those numbers 
and figuring out exactly what happened so that you and your attorney and I can come up with a proper strategy to make sure you get what you deserve in this divorce, right? I'm very action focused. And I, I found that that's a good counterbalance to the emotions running high. So Tracy, this may seem very basic and elementary, but I think it's really important to go over it because there are some misconceptions about what is considered fraud. What would be considered fraud in the context of a divorce? So setting aside the legal definition, I talk about financial infidelity. And to me, that is any dishonesty surrounding the money. So it might be lying about how much money you have, lying about where the accounts are, having hidden accounts, spending money inappropriately or outside of the agreements that you have as husband and wife. And so those agreements could be, I won't spend more than $1,000 without talking to my spouse first. And when someone does spend more than that without talking to their spouse first, to me, that's financial infidelity. Now, is that theft? Is that fraud? Probably doesn't cross that line if you're thinking about it in the mm-hmm. legal sense. However, when we do get to the point of divorce, let's say your spouse spent $5,000 on an affair. If we can pull together the proof of that and have those transactions and be able to show that judge, here is exactly what was spent on this affair, that can be factored into how the numbers shake out in that divorce, what the property mm-hmm. settlement mm-hmm. is, et cetera. So that wasn't a very definite answer for you, kind of a broad answer that encompasses a lot of things, but that's how I look at it. And are there other situations where fraud can happen regarding income, whether it's employment income or rental income or business income? Sure. People hide their sources of income, right? Someone might have a side job that their spouse doesn't know about or doesn't know the extent of their earnings and they're maybe salting away some of that money. So that's fairly typical. Sure. Rental income, you know, I've been involved in cases where one spouse has taken marital money to secretly buy a property in another state and hopes to not have to divide that property in the divorce, but also has rental income from it that's never being disclosed and is being hidden businesses. So ownership of a small business, you know, what becomes interesting is when we get to the point of divorce, it is so very typical for the person running the business and bringing in the family income from that business to say, oh gosh, the business is doing bad. We just simply don't have any money. There's no income. I can't pay support. The business is worthless. There's nothing to divide. Of course, many times that's all shenanigans. And Mm -hmm. someone like me comes in to sort that out. And in that situation, because I feel like small businesses have such opportunity to hide income, hide assets, overstate expenses so that it looks like the business is not doing well. How do you unravel that tangled ball of yarn? Because it's not easy. And I mean, I run my books pristine and I'm so careful about personal expenses, business expenses. I do monthly reconciles, but the vast majority of people are much more loosey-goosey right? and don't have nearly as good records. So when you are looking at a situation of a woman who her spouse, soon to be ex-spouse, has a business, a private business. So it's not trading on the stock exchange where there are filings that are available to the public. It's a private business that's not public. 
where do you start and what do you look for? I start by looking at a history of three to five years of what's been going on. And that history to me has to start before there's any inkling that we might get divorced. So I want to clean three to five years before we think there might be a divorce. And, you know, there are cases I work where, you know, the wife says, oh gosh, he's been planning this for years. Okay. That makes it more difficult to like get what I call that clean period. But in most cases, there is usually like everyone kind of knows the point at which the marriage started to fall apart. And so let's work back from there and look at three to five years, what was happening. What I ask for is financial statements, tax returns, and bank documents. And the most important is the bank documents, because what I'm doing is I literally go down to that bank statement level I pull all those transactions off the bank statements because that's the truth of what happened. And I compare it to what their accounting records say. I look for discrepancies. I look at all those in and outs. I'm looking for changes in income. I'm looking at those expenses to see, is there anything that looks suspicious? You know, all of a sudden, you know, we see things like a line item, like consulting expense suddenly jumps up right around the time of divorce. Well, that's suspicious to me because that is a type of account that can be abused to bury money in, bury expenses Mm -hmm. in. So that's kind of the basic process. So I get that three to five year history. And then we move into the, what I'll call the divorce period and compare that and see what's been happening. And, And typically what we see is the income has a massive drop right around that time when divorce is being contemplated or filed. We see expensive are bumping up at that same time and voila, the company has no money. Then it's up to me to dig in to try to find the truth of what's been happening with the expenses, what's been happening with the income. So I start digging into the details to look, okay, you had a customer that was typically spending $100,000 a year and I could count on them to spend $100,000 every year. And all of a sudden, right around the time of the divorce, that customer disappeared. I'm going to dig into where that customer is. Did they get shuttled off to a new company that we know nothing about, but actually is owned by the husband? And so I'm looking for all those kinds of things. And it can get really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the movie that just came out not too long ago, Death on the Nile. And you think one person killed them. And then the next moment you have more evidence and you're looking at the other and and it's really riveting. And I know that it's not a Hollywood drama that we're talking about, a Hollywood mystery, but I find that it's just as interesting. And the piece that's interesting too, I mean, we're talking about numbers, but you have to be creative to think about how could this be done and go through all of those different scenarios, like you said, increasing expenses of consulting or raising salaries. In one case, I saw that the person that he ended up having an affair with got a 100% increase in her salary. And she did not move from part-time to full-time. So being really careful about that. And at the same time, having the skill set to be very detail-oriented and numbers-focused, that is a powerful combination because you're looking at the results like A plus B equals C. So you're looking at C and you're trying to figure out what is that equation that resulted in C. And I always say I have to look really far into the details without losing sight of the big picture. And that's where sometimes people go wrong in fraud investigations is they get their head so far into the details that they forget about the big picture and whether it matters. So you're right. Those skills are super important. But you mentioned being creative. 
And this is the part of it that I love is when when we have a pretty good suspicion that someone is intentionally manipulating those numbers in the business, I have to find ways to prove what they're doing. And of course, they're trying to hide what they're doing. They're trying to make it so that someone like me can't find it. So what do we do? Businesses that are heavily cash-based, like restaurants, bars, things like that. One of the things that I always look at is the ratio of credit card receipts to cash receipts. And there's usually a pretty predictable relationship. And it, it differs for every business. But let's say I've got one where they're 60% credit card versus 40% cash. And then the divorce is filed and all of a sudden there's almost no cash whatsoever. And almost everything is credit card. That's some pretty good evidence to prove that someone is pulling that cash out of that business and not reporting it. I had an interesting case where they were a manufacturer. And oh, business has tanked and they had a likely story, a story that could have been plausible. They came up with a good story for why business has tanked and our customers aren't ordering anymore. And look, our sales have gone down so far. Our sales have been cut in half and this is terrible. And I had this brainstorm that involved subpoenaing the company's FedEx records because FedEx was who they shipped all of their products through. And what do you think we found? That it at least stayed the same and maybe even went up. Yes, it went up. So we were able to use that as indirect proof that something was going on. I had one involving a laundromat, a really good sized laundromat that made a ton of money. Oh gosh, there was, again, another likely story as to why nobody's coming to the laundromat anymore. I said, well, gosh, we got to figure this out somehow. Ha ha ha. Let's check the water bills. The water bills were exactly the same as they had always been. It is fun coming up with these ways and there's always a way to disprove what they're saying. And that, that's the thing is when someone's committing fraud, they forget some of these details that are left behind, some of these clues that are left behind. And that's my job to find them. So we have just talked about a small business. We've talked about essentially using marital assets and dissipating assets through spending that on girlfriends, on gambling, on alcohol, things that you should not be having to fit the bill for. But then there's another piece that is hiding investments or not disclosing investments, or if there are investments that are difficult to value, such as a private equity or commercial real estate, not being fair and truthful about their values. That was a lot I just threw at you. But number one, did I miss anything? And then can you dive into how can we be sure that like the money didn't get shipped offshore? How can we be sure that when you look at the state print of net worth or depending on the state you live in, the, the financial affidavit, that those disclosed assets by your spouse are number one, the correct value, but number two, that it's encompassing all the marital assets? It's really hard. So I'm going to start by saying the offshore accounts, people talk about those. What if he's hiding money overseas? I would say if you are wealthy, it's more likely that that may happen. If you know that there's a history of doing business, investments, banking overseas, sure, it's more likely. For the average person in divorce, it's probably not happening. When we think about bank accounts or investment accounts domestically, I, as a forensic accountant, look for clues that there might be accounts elsewhere. And again, it comes back to someone being sloppy. I can't tell you how many cases where I've seen that the spouse who's trying to hide the bank account at Wells Fargo that the wife doesn't know about, 
he will accidentally make a transfer from their joint account to Wells Fargo for some reason. Or he'll also have a credit card at Wells Fargo that she didn't know about and he'll accidentally pay it from their joint account. And I find things that way. So I'm looking for hints that business may have been done at other banks or investment houses. And if a name pops up that we get suspicious about, the attorney sends off a subpoena. We can't subpoena every bank and every investment house under the world. But if we have reason to think that there's something at Wells Fargo, fine, let's take a chance and send a subpoena there and see what comes back. How hard is it to send a subpoena and how expensive? It is not hard to send a subpoena. It's something your attorney has to do. And it's really just a procedural thing. And it happens all the time in divorces and all court cases. And a subpoena is basically just a legal document that says, hey, bank, there's this court case going on. And the judge says, you have to give us the documents. And then the bank complies. It's not hard at all. It takes a little bit of time to get the records back. There sometimes is a fee involved. You know, the bank will say, it took us some hours to get these documents together, but it's always well worth it, I say. Yeah, I feel like there is the myth that if you need to subpoena several different financial institutions, that it's going to run you thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And that's just really not the case. No, I think what costs more a lot of times is when the attorneys are saying, well, let's ask your husband to give us these bank statements and financial records. And then letters go back and forth between the attorneys fighting about whether or not the husband is going to give up those records when we could have just gone and done a subpoena directly to the bank and had those records within a month, for goodness sakes, instead of all these back and forth letters and phone calls between the attorneys. It's also, though, being smart and looking at the clues of where that money might be. And you're saying that, you know, looking through bank account records to see there's been a transfer to pay a credit card you didn't know about or a transfer in or outward bound towards a new account. Can you look at the tax return too and look at the, you know, realized capital gains, interest and dividends schedules, the tax return as another way to do a sniff test? Yes, of course. So I teach people very simple ways to look at tax returns because I know tax returns are super overwhelming if you don't work with them. There's a lot of pages, there's a lot of lines, there's a lot of crap that you just don't understand. So I show people exactly where to look on those tax returns to see, hey, some dividends came in from Charles Schwab and you didn't know you had an account there before. Now we know we need to go to Charles Schwab and ask for the records. So absolutely. But you asked earlier about, you were talking a bit about like business interests or real estate or things like that. That's kind of a separate piece from these accounts. And it's like, well, how would you know if there's some real estate that's owned? How would you know if there's another business out there? And that's where I think getting a private investigator involved can be very important, but it has to be the right private investigator. So for example, a number of cases, I've worked with one who works very specifically in divorce very specifically works on cases where you might have an executive, a business owner, someone who is very likely to have real estate holdings. And he will do an entire workup talking with the client about, okay, who are the other executives at the company? Who are his friends and other business associates? And we'll start digging into different people and businesses to try to uncover this kind of stuff. And it's amazing what can be uncovered. And just make it to be clear. So you're not a private investigator. No. And so if someone's worried about particularly real estate or some of these other topics, it could be that a private investigator is a good solution. 
But even the tax return, sometimes you'll see rental income. Where's that rental income coming from? Or capital gains from a property sale that flows through. Or so, K-1 income from a business interest you didn't know about before. Yeah, a limited partnership, a private equity, things like that. And I just think it's so fascinating. I love tax returns. I feel like they give us so much information. Anything else that we have to think about, Tracy, when it comes to assets and what sometimes naughty soon-to-be ex-spouses might be trying to do to hide them? Oh, that's a good question. So the first thing that popped into my mind was more on the income side, that if you have a spouse who is in an upper management or executive level position, we want to think real carefully about getting records from their company about their compensation, because there can be forms of compensation that maybe aren't reflected on tax documents, but are there in the background and can be very valuable. So that was the first thing that came to mind when you said anything else. Yeah, this is actually really important. Can you subpoena an employer? Yes, absolutely. So I think that's phenomenal because you could find out that they have an employee stock purchase plan, that they have restricted stock units, stock options, that instead of taking income, that they have decided to defer their income to be paid out in five years after they expect the divorce to be done. It's really naughty. And the tax return on those, you're typically not going to see. Right. You're not going to see that. And so the employer will have to show that. And you know, I've even seen where the employer will pay for a car, the use of a car, or if they are an expat, a percentage of their living expenses, even sometimes their apartment. And we see on the statement of net worth as an expense, funny enough, the apartment, the car, yeah. the blah, 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 when in reality, it's not coming out of their pocket. It's being paid for by their employer. So employers have a just wealth of information. And today, more than ever, I think this is an issue because more people, even people who are not senior management that are what we might consider more junior in a company, often have access to some of these very lucrative employee stock and other benefits. And it's all about trying to retain employees. and. We're seeing it more and more, whereas 10 years ago, you only tended to see it with some of the more senior right. folks out there. Now I'm sitting here feeling bad because I feel like I'm the Oprah of fraud. You have fraud and you have fraud and you have fraud. So I, <laughs> I don't want to make everyone like overly suspicious, but at the same time, I think it's so important to raise these issues that, you know, the average person probably isn't thinking about. Yeah. And FYI, yeah. I mean, a lot of times people think there is fraud and there's not. So you have to, of course, take into that. Tell me about when does it make sense to hire a forensic accountant? And Tracy, I know one of the challenges of a forensic accountant is how expensive they can be. Rightfully so, but it takes time to do this. It's not a one or two hour typical endeavor. And so it can be expensive and often the women where the stakes are the highest is when there are very low assets, where not disclosing that account is going to have a substantial material difference to her financial future. And she finds herself feeling trapped. So first off, 
when should someone hire a forensic accountant? And then I know, and this is a setup question for all of you listening, Tracy has some fantastic alternatives for those of you who can't spend a huge amount on this work, but yet know that it needs to be done. So I like to tell people that to get a forensic accountant involved is probably at least a $10,000 investment to start with. And depending on the complexity of your case, it could cost $20,000, $25,000. It unfortunately gets expensive really quickly because we're working with a lot of details and a lot of volume of information. And so if you're thinking about a forensic accountant, you have to think about how much money is at stake. And the funny thing is someone's listening and saying, well, if I knew how much money was hidden, I wouldn't need a forensic accountant, (laughs) would I? Yeah, that's true. That does be right. But, you know, I talk with clients, potential clients about how much money they have in the bank now and ask them some very pointed questions to help kind of drill down and get maybe an estimate of how much potentially could have been hidden over the years to see if it's worthwhile to hire a forensic accountant. So you have to think about how much you'd spend on the forensic accountant, how much it would cost to have your attorney pursue it legally, and is that worth it? But the truth is that probably 95% of people involved in divorce can't afford a forensic accountant. And so in my practice, I got tired of telling people, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to help you. It's not going to be worth your while. And so I wanted to create a resource and here's the setup. I created the divorce money guide as a do-it-yourself option where I show people with a process, 10 super easy steps. Even if you are not good with numbers, I show you what financial documents you need, how to get them, how to organize them and what to look for in them that will help you figure out, is there money missing? And so when you're done with that, what you might have is a list of transactions that you know are bad. They're for affairs, maybe Mm -hmm. buying a car that you never knew existed. God only knows what. You might have a really comprehensive list at the end of that, or you might have maybe not as comprehensive of a list, but you might have enough information to know that something is really wrong. And then it does justify taking that extra step to go hire a forensic accountant. And Tell me a little bit more about this because you have a program where it's not just using the guide, but there is some flexibility of being able to be part of a group coaching program where you can ask your questions and you can learn from other individuals that are following the same path and having this journey as well. I developed the guide. People started using it. But for many, numbers are intimidating, no matter how easy I try to make it. And I had people asking how to do things. Can you show me in more detail how to do this? Can you show Mm -hmm. me? I want to see. I want to see you show me. Like like where on the tax return? Can you show me? Like like where do I look? Like how to read an account statement, right? And, And how do I know, right? Yeah. So I came up with an option that is the guide plus group coaching. And so you get eight weeks of group coaching. Once a week, we meet for about an hour or a little more where I go through a topic in the divorce money guide and show you the how and explain more and let everyone ask questions. After we're done with the topic, we spend another 30 to 45 minutes doing a kind of an ask me anything about your divorce. And that means that you want to ask me, I found this transaction on a bank statement. What does this mean? Or what do I do next? Or should I worry about this? You can ask those kind of questions. If you've had a discussion with your attorney about a financial matter and you say, you know, 
My attorney said, this isn't something to worry about, but I still feel a little uncomfortable. What do you think about this? I'm happy to give my off the cuff what I would do next. Anything they want to ask. And then as part of the group coaching, we do it within a private Facebook group. So it's only for people who purchased the group coaching option. No one can see that you're in the group. It's all private, but then the members can converse with one another if they want to. And so I found that that as someone's going through a divorce, that opportunity to share stories with others, commiserate with one another, strategize with one another is really important. Yeah. And I think that's really powerful. And just for everyone who's listening, we don't get a percentage of anyone that signs up. You know, there's no type of relationship here. The reason why I really wanted you to talk about that, Tracy, is that getting this help, like you said, is out of reach for 95% of women. And it's a way that you can get this knowledge that you deserve. I've also found that for people who might not even suspect there's any fraud, the divorce money guide is still really important for them because in many, many marriages, there is a spouse who hasn't been actively involved with managing the family's finances. It's yeah. just the way it works in many marriages. We decide one spouse or the other is kind of yep. going to keep an eye on the money. If you're the spouse who hasn't been keeping an eye on the money and you're saying, okay, now I'm getting divorced. And now I want to understand what our money has been spent on over the last few years. Oh my goodness. Where do you start? That's very overwhelming to most. And so the divorce money guide can be used in that regard as well, because again, I'm going to show you here's what you need, here's how you get it, here's how you organize it, and here's what you can look for. I mean, this is all about setting yourself up for financial success for the rest of your life. And I apologize because I say this all the time, but the largest population of individuals living in poverty above age 65 are divorced women. Ooh. And that's not good. It has not changed. The numbers have not gotten better over the last decade. Knowing about money is not a nice to have. It is truly now a must have. And that's why leaning into your finances, especially during your divorce, when you're making decisions that are going to impact the rest of your life. And if you have children, quite frankly, going to impact their life too. You got to do it. And you're right. A lot of women, they weren't the ones that were in the driver's seat of the finances. No judgment. None at Um, all. It's like the divide and conquer. It is what it is. And I see, especially in situations where there's kids, it's so freaking busy. So busy. And quite frankly, I feel like at times, I mean, I love my children, but it can be really overwhelming as a parent. And I'm feeling it particularly now because we're in back to school and career night and PA meeting. And did you sign this form for self-dismissal after school and picking up the Metro cards so they can get home from school? And It's just like, oh my God, it's a lot. So I love that this is just another tool. Now a question, and I'd love your opinion. To use your guide, do you have to be good with numbers? I'm saying this because we both know the answer, but I really want to talk about this because this is a myth that a lot of women have about themselves, that money, they're just not good with it. Or becoming a successful, sophisticated investor is out of their reach. You don't have to be good with numbers. And I know that that sounds crazy because I am a forensic accountant and numbers are my life. And it's probably easy for me to say, oh no, anyone can do this. But I had beta testers. I have real customers now who have gone through it, who have said, oh my gosh, I did not know 
that I could do this. I didn't know how you were going to make it so that someone who's not good with numbers can do it. But guess what? Even if you still lack that confidence, and even if you don't believe me that anyone who's not good with numbers could still do this, one of the things I recommend throughout the guide is if you need some support, please, do you have a friend who's good with numbers, a friend you trust? Do you have a family member you trust who might be able to just sit with you and go through this stuff and provide you just a little bit of help? Because I think that we all know somebody who's good with numbers who would probably be willing to help us. And so you know, I just want to be so encouraging to anyone. Don't listen to those messages that you've been given all your life or that you've told yourself that I'm not good with this and I couldn't possibly because you can. And I don't want to in any way open a can of worms, but if a listener is in a situation that they've signed the settlement agreement, everything is finalized and somehow, some way they find out that not all of the information that was provided and considered during the divorce was accurate or comprehensive, including everything. What can they do? Can they do anything? Does it make sense to do something? They can do something, but I'll say my experience across the country and every state's different, but it is difficult to reopen a divorce. And it's especially difficult if you settled. So by agreeing to a settlement, Some courts kind of look at that as, well, you shouldn't have signed if you didn't think you had all the information. And so it can be hard to reopen it, but that discussion should always be had. I would Mm -hmm. get with your attorney or a different divorce attorney if you feel you'd be better off with a different one and talk about what is the likelihood of reopening this. And you have to think about how much is at stake. So if you you somehow came across an account that had $5,000 in it that was never disclosed, hey, it's probably going to cost you more than that to even pursue it. But if we're talking some pretty significant assets, then certainly it's going to make sense to pursue that. When I say it's difficult to reopen a case, I don't want that to discourage people from seeking information because in your state, it might be easier. There may be provisions in your state that specifically speak to if there was a fraudulent disclosure in this process that was filed with the court, there may be remedies. And so please look into what your options are. You know, I will tell you, I don't want to do a broad swath of like any matrimonial attorney would be happy to talk to you. But most matrimonial attorneys, if you're calling them seeking advice of just how hard would this be, they're going to be happy to speak with you about that just so that you can get that frame of reference. Doesn't make sense to move forward. Right. Well, we have gone through a lot. We've talked about finding income that may not be disclosed truly, looking and really seeing how expenses are being treated and if there are any type of dissipation claims that you might have of using marital assets towards a really big purchase of a car that's not disclosed or gambling or a girlfriend and all of that. We've also talked about investments and how you can find on the tax return, just even looking at bank statements to see if there's been transfers to accounts you're not familiar with, just even looking at what's coming in the mail. And we've also talked about businesses, which I know is a a ripe area, unfortunately, for being able to hide things and through the employer and how one of your tools to get this information is a subpoena, that it's myth busted, not a difficult thing to do. 
and you can uncover a huge amount of information. And one of those places, if you're in any way nervous, should be being filed on the employer of your spouse. And it's not that going to affect their employment. It's not going to jeopardize their employment. They have many other subpoenas, I'm sure, that have come on, you know, come through that. So it has no that. It just, again, gives you more information to be able to make make a good decision about, do I move forward with a forensic accountant? Do I work with the money guide in the coaching program? Or is this something that I feel confident moving forward, not having this piece investigated? So a lot of stuff, anything that we missed or any last parting words that you want to share, Tracy? So if someone is out there and they are concerned, I've seen some things happening in my marriage and I don't know if I'm just being paranoid about the money or if I should really be concerned that there might be money missing. I have an assessment that they can take. We can put the link in the show notes. It's about 15 questions where I ask you questions about how you and your spouse manage the money in your marriage. And I asked some questions about some of the signs that you may have been seeing. Have you noticed this? And there's a list and you just check off the things that you've noticed. And when you get done answering all the questions, you will have a result returned to you that tells you kind of how likely it is that there might be fraud in your marriage. And so I feel like it's really important to give people sort of an objective measurement because sometimes, you know, we get so into our own situations and we're so fixated on them that we aren't being objective about whether this is serious or not serious. So that's my way to give people kind of an assessment of how serious those warning signs are and whether they should be worried. I love it. We'll make sure for all of you listening to have a link to the assessment. We'll also have a link to Tracy's website, the money guide, so that you can have access to that. Anything else that you want to share about how individuals can reach out to you and get a hold of you? They can find me at fraudcoach.com. Go ahead and look for me on LinkedIn as well. If you want to read more content kind of from my work as a forensic accountant, we'll make sure that we put the coupon code in for all of you in the show notes. And Tracy, thank you for being so generous with your time, with your knowledge. I have so enjoyed this conversation and I feel a little bit more like the world is in a better place and a little bit more right. It really makes me feel good that we're getting this out there for individuals who thought that maybe there was no hope and no ability to be able to find out this information that they now know they've got some resources, they've got some tools and some support. The Divorce Money Guide is all about helping more people. So I am honored to be able to share this with people. So thank you for having me. Love it. Thank you, Tracy. Thanks. I hope you were writing down a lot of this information, but don't worry if you didn't, because in the show notes, we have all the resources that we spoke about today, the website of financialcoach.com, the assessment that you can take to see what is the likelihood that fraud is present in your divorce. Financial security is very important, and I'm so happy that you're making this commitment to make sure that you have all the information you need to make a good financially sound decision. And if you have questions about what your settlement will look like for your long-term financial future, I highly encourage you to reach out to me. I am passionate about helping individuals restart their life, improve their life, and have financial peace of mind and security around their finances. Obviously, 
going through a divorce is a really stressful time. And the number one worry that we hear is about money and will I be okay long-term? Well, we can be that sounding board and we can help you answer those questions to make sure that you are on that path to long-term financial security. So please do reach out. You can reach me at Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at francisfinancial.com. And you can also go to our website, www.francisfinancial.com. We have hundreds of press articles and blogs about everything you need to know about money, divorce, and beyond. Thank you for tuning in to Financially Ever After. I'll be seeing you in two short weeks. Thank you.